Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 111 of the In Squash podcast. Uh, and today I'm really excited to, uh, to have on uh, Paul Johnson. Uh, we all know him for his uh, excellent commentary on uh, Squash TV. And of course, uh, he had, uh, had an incredible uh, professional career reaching uh, the top five in the world, I think as high as number four, and uh, doing well uh, playing for England on several occasions, uh, winning a, a gold medal in the doubles at the Commonwealth Games amongst, uh, I think, a couple of uh, bronze and silver medals there. Uh, but uh, Paul comes on uh, the podcast today, and we have a great chat about all sorts of uh, aspects of the game, uh, his career, and uh, I even uh, go into a bit. Of, we talk a little bit of golf. Uh, I'm sorry to you know have to inform you about that for those of you who don't uh, enjoy golf. But uh, Paul and I are both addicted. Uh, well, I I am, uh, and uh, I know he plays quite a bit as well, uh, along with his squash, as do I. So, uh, but anyways, uh, this uh, episode is great. Uh, we talk a bit about the the 2019-2020 season, how it's kicked off and the, the expectations that, that uh, he has uh, in terms of who, sh who might finish on top and the contenders in both the, the men's and women's games. We also look at some uh, officiating, uh, refereeing uh, issues, or you might be um, surprised to hear uh, PJ's take on the officiating uh, these days and his take on uh, the player review system. Uh, we also take a look at some uh, some of the more uh, talked about calls in some of the, the more recent matches. So uh, I know you'll enjoy that aspect of it. And also uh, I brought up the fact that uh, recently uh, uh, on my 100th episode, I had Jonathan Power on and uh, also in a conversation on Squash TV with Rod Martin, how uh, both of those guys, amongst a, a few others from uh, previous generations, uh, would like to see the players... Uh, get on court maybe with more of a we're not here to uh, make friends attitude. So we delve in, into that uh, a little bit. So I consider myself uh, lucky to have PJ on again. I know you're going to enjoy this. Paul Johnson, episode 111 of the In Squash podcast. Yeah, how did everything go with your, your iPad, man? Uh, sorry to hear about that. Uh, you lost it or Jerry? It's been a disaster. It's been, yeah, it's, 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 gone, it's gone missing somewhere. I've got the... Um, there's a feature where you can um, locate it, and so it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's last seen in an area that I am familiar with, and I I know roughly where it was, but um, it's not looking not looking great right now. Oh is, uh, no! Did you leave it in the taxi or uh, yeah. leave no, it at the coffee um, shop? I went to a squash club. So. so I, ironically, I, I took it. I, I don't normally travel during the day with the iPad. I normally use it for work of an evening time. But because you and I were going to speak around twelve that day, I, I left the apartment about nine o'clock in the morning. I went to an, I went to a diner. I had to go somewhere else to pick up some coffees, and and I've been back and backtracked all of those locations, and basically it wasn't there. So it's um, uh, I don't know where it's gone now, and the battery power's gone down. So until that's activated, you can't locate it. So the yeah. whole thing's a, a, a little bit of a mystery, Jerry. Shall we yeah. say? Yeah, I had a similar thing happen uh, several years ago. In uh, I went, my wife's Korean, so we went to uh, Seoul for a few weeks. I went out and had a few drinks and uh, had it with me. Yeah. In the taxi, <laughs> and then yeah. uh, got got to my wife, got to my yeah. parents-in-law's place, and. Uh, by the time I you know woke up and realized it was still in the taxi, 
and uh, nowhere, nowhere never, to be found recovered. after never, that. Never to be seen again. Never. Yeah, they're <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Well, it's, uh, somebody's hopped off with it somewhere. That, that's that's the sad thing. But, but yeah. uh, well, anyways, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, well, with any luck, maybe you'll you'll somehow you'll find it. But uh, who knows? Yeah, who knows? you know, you end up. <laughs> it's one of those things. You end up going and looking back in certain places where, at the time, you're actually questioning yourself, thinking whether you've completely lost the plot or not, because. You know, this is now the fourth time you've looked in the fridge. <laughs> what, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, it's one yeah. of those unfortunate things. Um, you know, things have been crazy busy with work over here. So I'm in between places and, you know, what it's like when you're not settled in, in yeah. situations like that. It, it makes life a little bit more difficult. But anyway, yeah. it, it is what it is. That's it is right. Are you, uh, are you, you're stateside. So, are you, you in, uh, were you in Boston or New York? Um, First came to Greenwich, Connecticut, then I relocated to Boston and then moved back down to New York in 2016. So I've, I've, I've had a little bit of a hop around. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, a, li a, li a little bit going on. New York's quite the, uh, quite the hotbed for, for a, lot of the, a lot of the, you know, old pros and lot, lots of good pros there and some good squash. Uh, I would imagine these days you've got the uh, Ashore brothers or at least uh, Hisham is there. And yourself and uh, quite Hisham's a few been others here for are... a number of years. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's been here for a number of years. I mean, you Rodney Martin's based here, Chris Walker's based here, so it is a massive squash hub that's that's continually evolving. It's it's nuts at the moment. It's um, seems to be an ongoing thing. This is where the money is, Jerry, and and it's a big lure for for a lot of ex players and and what have you. So it's. It's understandable. Um, this is where they can make their coin, and, and as a result of that, you're seeing a massive improvement in the standard of the play as well. The, the Americans used to be the laughing stock of the junior events yeah. back in the day. All the yeah, European sure. players would be rubbing we, hands together and looking. As at a Canadian, uh, we used to lick our chops when we'd see a few Americans in the draw. Yeah, <laughs> back in the eighties. Correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now it's now it's back in the eighties. That's right, eighties and nineties. Yeah, yeah. So you around Gary White and Crombie's era, or were you post? Oh yeah, I, I was. Uh, I was a little bit younger than than those guys, but yeah, right around that time, Gary, Set, yeah. Sabir, Butt, uh, Jamie Crombie, um, yeah, all those guys. Remember a crazy guy called Jim Geddes? Do you remember? Jim oh, Geddes? oh yeah, I know Jimmy really well. He, uh, I think, in my first ever Junior Nationals under twelve, uh, we were billeted together. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Kerry. <laughs> a funny story about him. He came over. Oh, tell, uh, he came over tell us about the North it. American, <laughs> he, he played the North American circuit a uh, number of years ago. I'm guessing around about 1990, 91, that kind of. It was when I was just starting out on the tour myself. I flew across from the UK and we played a bunch of events in Oklahoma, um, San Antonio. Uh, there was one that went across the West Coast to San Fran, then one back in Boca. We went down to Jamaica to play an event. So a little bit of a, a circuit that, that was a, a good starter pack for, for young players like myself coming out. And then I first came across this Jim Geddes, and he was such a nice guy, a great oh, guy. Yeah. But he, he, he turned up in this red bloody truck. It was like a, a people, not a people carrier, it's like a, what do they call them? Um, it was like this big four-door saloon hatchback car it was and he had right. he basically everything that he owned was in this truck and um so he turned up he's played a couple of events and he became good friends with robert owen obviously who's okay. robert owen's a I didn't know robert. Uh, gambler. Okay. he loves he loves to have a, a flat 
Rob Owen, oh, you know, before, after his squash, he became an optician. And then after he became an optician, he became a professional gambler, made uh, right. a lot of money, became very successful as a gambler. And now he's come back into squash. So anyway, he had a, he had a, a big um, penchant for backgammon. And so did Jim. <laughs> and long story short, after going back and forth over a few events, Jim ended up handi- having to hand over the keys to his little red truck with everything oh. in it because oh, he no. lost it all to Robert on the backgammon board. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. That's, uh, that's classic. Yeah, yeah Jimmy, classic. Uh, Jimmy was not, classic. I mean, probably would have struggled a little bit uh, playing you guys, but uh, back, you know, playing at the, the national level with us in Canada, he was always known for, for f- his five-game marathons, regardless of uh, the level of the guy he was playing. Could have been a top guy or could have been – uh, yeah, you know, someone <laughs> yeah, else, and he was always going five games. Anybody, yeah, yeah. But uh, like now, his money's worth, Jerry. That's absolutely, it. yeah. Uh, but uh, PJ, you uh, you've been working a bit with some juniors as well. Uh, you mentioned you had a couple playing uh, last weekend. Uh, so uh, how how's that going for you? The coaching side of things and um, your juniors in particular. Uh, how how are they making out? They're awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been here for a number of years now where I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, shall we say, handpick the, the clients and the players that I get to work with. Um, I find that that's where I get the most reward. Sometimes in some of the, the country club environments and the facilities that are available over here, some of these players will come in and it's almost as though they've been forced to do it by their parents. And the kids don't necessarily always want to be on the court. They have hectic schedules anyway. The yeah. homework load here is, is astronomical. The, the standards are very, very high. So that's, that's already a massive, massive factor. Um, but the, I currently work with between six and eight players. And every single player that I get to work with wants to be on the court which makes my job so much easier because you feel that your time and effort is being reciprocated and they're putting in as much as you're giving so that's a formula for a a working recipe for me Mm. Uh, it hasn't always been that way there's been times when I first came over especially when I needed to build up a client base and had to take whichever lessons came my way and now um, a little bit more established and I'd like to think of a better reputation. So it's, and, and the players that I've worked with have done well. So, I've, you know, off the back of that, some more further work has come my way. So I'm very fortunate. I, I, I enjoy doing it and I've met a lot of really great people along the way. I'm still very close with a number of the families that I've worked with over the last 14 years. So that in itself says quite a lot. That's but, great. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of great, great people over here, but it's, it hasn't always been like that. Well, it's good to um, it's good to have you guys and yeah. yourself, like you said, mentioned earlier, Rodney Martin, uh, Chris Walker, even Peter Nicklick, and yeah. sort of based over there. And it's great to see yeah. uh, the great the game. You know, not only in America, but I think it sort of uh, bleeds into Canada as well. The game's really players are really uh, developing uh, in the region, and uh, I think we need that given uh, the dominance of uh, of Egypt yeah. uh, in the game I right I now. I don't know. I'm not sure if you. Not sure if you remember that day at the U.S. Open, but I think it was something like four players made it through the first round of the U.S. Open, which is yeah, yeah. American U.S. players have made it through the first round, which is record-breaking. Yeah, I mean, you know, for them to have that kind of uh, success is it's an it's, it's full credit to them, and and it's kind of um, 
identifies how serious the states are about it because they're investing a lot of money. You've got this new facility going up in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. They're pumping millions and millions of dollars into it. And you can see that that's already starting to have a bit of an impact. It's yeah, great. for sure. For sure. And uh, I think for the Canadians, I mean, our top juniors uh, typically end up in the U.S. for four years going to school there and they get the benefits of working college. with people uh, uh, like, yeah, going to college and working with great coaches there. So it, it rubs off uh, or bleeds into uh, the northern, uh, that, that big country to the yeah. north. Jerry, look, look, at, look at some of the Ivy League schools now. Okay, you've got Mike Way at Harvard. You've got yeah. David Palmer at Cornell. Alistair, Alistair Walker was at Columbia. Hansi Veens is at Dartmouth. Um, Martin Heath, it's not an Ivy League, but he's up in Rochester. So, yeah. you know, these players now for what used to happen. Linku's Lin at uh, Tufts, isn't he? Linku's down there. No, he's not, no, no, he's not at Tufts. He's at MIT. MIT, sorry. Yeah, yeah. MIT, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So, originally when I first came over 14, 15 years ago, the standard of the players when they entered college to when they left actually deteriorated in my opinion. <laughs> they they yeah. didn't really get any better because the standard of the coaching was, uh, shall we say, subpar. But now you've had this influx of top quality coaches. You know, Ali Farag's come through the system. He's an exception. Manda Sobey's come through the system. Um, she's gone pro. Andrew Douglas wants to do the same. Spencer well, well, look at this young, this young uh, Indian girl as well. The young, she just, uh, well, she just beat uh, Amanda Sobey there at the World Open. And I, she's, I'm hoping to have her on the podcast. Can you help yeah. me with her name? <laughs> Uh, Supermanium. Yeah, Supermanium. Supermanium. Yeah. Okay, is that right? Supermanium, yeah. Supermanium. Yeah, she seems like yeah. a really nice girl. So, uh, and ultra talented. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, it bodes well, definitely. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the 2019. Yeah. Uh, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. yeah, the 2019 2020 season, uh, PJ's gotten off to a really a, a great start, even from the beginning there in, in Nantes with uh, Paul Cole. Uh, you know, winning that one. And then uh, obviously you got Mohamed El Shabagi and Ali Farag uh, winning the tournaments after that and looking like uh, they're going to be fighting for the number one and number two uh, spots. Uh, and then you've got a slew of others. <laughs> uh, but it, it certainly really does look like it's going to be the two of those guys uh, battling for one and two in the men's. Is that uh, basically how you see that uh, playing out? I, I do actually. I think, as you say, it's been an unbelievable start to the season, uh, in my opinion. Um, we're already starting to see this this fascinating rivalry, I would say, between uh, El Shabagi and Farag. Mm. Uh, it's, it's been going for a couple of years now, but it's so interesting how both players will they'll trade blows on one player will win, and then you know whoever loses goes away, and they they try to reinvent their game and develop a plan to try and come back and. So those two, for me, are starting to, to lift the bar again for, for the men's game. Um, you would have to say that there was a time early on, especially when Farag came onto the scene after he got a win or two over Shibagi. Shibagi, for me, always had the mental edge over Farag. Also the experience and probably the aura a little bit. Yeah. Farag had the squash playing ability. But you could tell that when it did get very tough physically and mentally, Shibagi, I just felt, had had the edge there. But... 
Barre's gone away and, and he's worked on that. He's had a couple of wins now. It was a massive win that US Open back a couple of years ago in 2017. That catapulted his confidence levels for me. Yeah. He then backed it up when he won the World Championships, when he beat El Shibagi. El Shibagi was clearly fatigued in, in that final, but take nothing away from Farage. He's beaten him in the World Championships. And then he's gone and done the same thing again here in the US Open. Um, well, clearly some issues for me for, with El Shibagi in that final. Um, I've mm. never seen El Shibagi pretty much give up like he did in the, th- the third game. So I'm not sure if there were any uh, external issues going on there or if his body was breaking down. He had a very tough run through, don't forget, to yeah. that final. But regardless, again, full credit to Ali. He's capitalised uh, on that. So, you know, those two for me have... have as I said, taking this, you know, the game to new levels at the moment. But you've got such a great chasing pack coming through. You've got yeah. Eric Moman, who's established himself up at number three. He's been very consistent. Um, he's had a bit of a wobble this week in uh, the World Championships, but yeah. he's yeah. now. I, I don't. Yeah. I think he'll get that consistency back again, and, and he'll be. He'll definitely be in the mi- in the mix there. But it just made it's it's so open now. You've got the likes of Gawad hovering around four or five. You've got um, Joel Makins making a huge run coming through. Um, Diego Elias had a fantastic U.S. Open. So there's so many moving parts behind Ali and uh, Mohammed, who for me are, they are head and shoulders above the rest at the moment. But this chasing pack are coming up uh, yeah. extremely quickly. So I, I think this is going to be another uh, terrific season. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I was going to say uh, some of those guys that you mentioned, like Diego, Simon Rosner, Paul, even Paul Cole, Joel Macon uh, had a big win over Tarek. Uh, Mustafa Asal actually uh, took out um, yeah. some, someone, uh, a big name earlier in the event. I forget uh, who it was, but then he just lost yeah. to Marwan uh, today in five games. So there are a lot of, uh, I mean, yeah. a lot of these guys are going to be vying for that top spot uh, I'd say out of all of them, I, I thought, yeah, oh, that's right. Uh, Asal beat uh, Diego in the uh, second or third round. That's right. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I was going to say yeah. bef- a few days ago, when, before you had uh, the iPad incident, I was going to say uh, Diego seemed like the guy out of all of them who could potentially break through. Uh, he has that game. Uh, but, um, I mean, Joel Macon is looking really, uh, really strong as well. And he's one of these guys who he's just as tough as nails, man. That guy. I am. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I, just going back to Diego, I thought Diego's performance in the U.S. Open was. We saw him burst onto the scene a couple of years ago, and I, I always enjoyed watching Diego play. For me, he's a he's a, a very natural squash player. He reads the game very well. He's very ec- economical and fluid with his movement. Very mature head on on young shoulders, but he just needed to get a little bit of experience. And now we're starting to see that evolve a little bit, compiled with the fact that I saw there was a body change in Elias at the US Open. Physically, he looked a lot stronger. There was a lot more definition in the legs. He had a bit more power coming out of the lunge when he was moving into shots previously. As the game progressed, as he got fatigued, he would collapse a little bit and not quite have the same recovery. Um, But his performance against Gawad in the quarterfinals was the best I'd ever seen Diego play. Yeah. And I think if we can start to repeat those kind of performances, then I agree hundred percent. He's going to be one of these players, you know, closing in on that 
that top five, top four, top five kind of ranking. Um, he's not quite there yet. He doesn't quite have the consistency. But if he gets his body, that was always the question for Elias. Can he get himself physically into a condition to compete yeah. with these top players on a, on a regular basis? And he's looking as though he's starting to do that. It's early stages, uh, Jerry. But if he can carry on in that vein of form, then, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that he's got a top three within his, within his capabilities. Um, and then going back to Joel Macon, he, he's a very, his performances are very workmanlike, maybe a little bit harsh on him because he's, he's a terrific squash, squash player, but he's, he's rock solid. He very rarely has yeah. a poor movement day. He has a, very rarely does he have a bad day at the office. And he's, he's a very hard player to break down. He's had a good win now against Tarek in the, in the tournament in Egypt. He was unfortunate with a very tough draw against Paul Cole in the US Open. But he's one of those players that is certainly making his mark on the tour. And the top guys are well aware of the, the dangers of somebody like Joel Makin. Again, he's very new on the circuit. I remember first watching him in, I think, 2017 in the British Open. He actually got stuck into Mohamed El Shabagi in the match that they had in Manchester. And that was the, the, um, an impressive performance then. But he's gone away and he's pushed on now. And he's looking a lot more professional and a lot more complete. So, again, another player along with Elias that, that's going to rival these top players and, and is going to be a hard, uh, hard player to break down and beat. Yeah, he's one of the one of Rob's. Uh, he's in Rob Owen's uh, camp there. One of one of several that are that are playing quite well uh, these days. You may, may may need to tread precaution there, uh, Jerry, because I think there's been a little bit of unrest in the camp by all accounts. Um, oh, re oh, really? I didn't I didn't uh, realize uh, that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, I'll put, we'll, I'm sure we'll find out pretty soon if that's not the case. But um, as we know, Paul Cole has gone across to start training with uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Rob Owen uh, up in the Midlands. Um, and I think there may have been a little bit of friction between uh, Rob and um, Joel as a result of that. Um, right. I don't know uh, well, that, I mean, the details. Yeah, that's bound but, to happen, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, that kind of thing. I mean, when you've got guys that are competing for can, the same you, thing, you know? You, you can look at it in two ways, Jerry. Uh, I mean, yes, it, it can happen. But the, so just to put it... it it, the situation that I had when I was playing um, and I was being coached by David Pearson, David Pearson at the time, I would be on court having my lesson and out the back of the court as I'm coming to finish, there would be Simon Park waiting, waiting to go on for his session. Um, and earlier on in the day, he'd been training with Peter Nickel, two of my main rivals at the time. <laughs> yeah, Did I yeah. ever see that as a problem? No, not at all, because I would actually sit there and I'd watch some of the sessions and I would learn from the things that they were doing. Um, it was never an issue for me to be on court. In fact, I, I would thrive on being on court with players in and around my level, slightly better or slightly worse, because it gave it, I felt it gave me an opportunity to implement the things and areas of my game that I was working on and put them under pressure. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, gonna, it's um, obviously there's going to be occasions where you will end up competing against these, against these players, but it, on, the, on the day, the best man wins. It's as simple as that. I, I personally never had a, a problem with that, but I can understand if you have two strong personalities or big personalities within a camp that there can be friction. It just depends how you're, willing to to deal with it yeah for sure i mean uh, i get it just i mean joel seems like seems like a really seems like a straight shooter uh, a very competitive yeah. guy on court uh so and paul too paul just seems like a super nice guy too so 
must be something also, something also else. A very straight shooter. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. two 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 very straight very straight laced guys that are competitive and they want to be the best they can be. It's a competitive environment, but hey. <laughs> Yeah, it is what it is. So you just have to you have to get on with it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Now, the, now the women's World Open is uh, ongoing right now, as you know, and uh, just I mean the women's game, as we all know, is really I, I think probably the best it's ever been. Uh, Renee Elwilly, number one in the world. Norel Sherbini, she's back playing. Norel Tayev is playing well to start the season. And my yeah. personal personal favorite. Uh, of them all, she's sort of resurged uh, last year as uh, Norhan Gohar, and she. I just love the the intensity <laughs> with which uh, she plays. Uh, so how uh, how do you see things playing? I mean, it seems like it's a more more dynamic uh, situation there at the top of that game, and then you also have others uh, like in the men's game, several others uh, in there competing: Camille Serm, S.J. Perry, and uh, others. Uh, how do you see things playing out there? Again, for me, the, the, the start to the season for the women's has also been uh, quite spectacular. Um, just going back to the performance that I saw. I mean, obviously, you've got the, the top four that you've mentioned there. You've got Raneem, Noran, uh, Shabini, uh, Nurul Tayeb, and then Noran. Uh, she's not quite four in the world at the moment, I don't think, but she's very, very hot on the heels. And it's just a matter of time for me before she takes either the number one or the number two spot, especially Absolutely. the way that yeah. she's playing. Mm. But going back to the start of the season, El Tayeb beat uh, El Walili in China. Now she Walili looked, she looks a lot fitter, doesn't she? She just looks really fit. She looks much fitter than she has in recent no, years. No, 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 El Tayeb looks to me in the best physical shape that I've seen. So yeah. she's obviously clearly had a very hard working summer. You know, probably helps the fact that she's, you know, doing some training with Ali uh, along along with the same physical trainers. They, they found a working formula there. So she's got herself into very, very good shape physically. There's no doubting Tyab's squash ability. She's She actually plays quite a little bit like some of the not to compare the guys to the girls but she has quite a like a man's style of play she's very attacking yeah. she's ferocious very competitive she's gutsy she's mobile she's got all the attributes and the traits um and and again it it makes it so exciting at the top for me because you've got those those four players that, that are battling it out but one of the most astounding performances i've seen over the years was Raneem El-Walili in San Francisco in the women's final. Some of it you could maybe put down to the conditions. It was very, very cool. It was a, a, an outdoor court that they were playing at, at the Embarcadero, just on the bay there. So there's a little bit of breeze coming off, making the temperatures on the court very, very cold, which favoured an attacking player. But Raneem El-Walili dispatched... El Tayeb, who was playing, she didn't play badly, El Tayeb, in 23 minutes. Yeah. But it wasn't just so one-sided in, in, in as much as, you know, Tayeb was playing poorly. Tayeb wasn't playing that badly. She just got completely outplayed and outclassed by a level of squash from a female that I've, I've never witnessed before. Yeah. The, the, the severity of the length, again, it was, it was being accentuated by the conditions of the court, but the severity of the length that Walili was hitting to create an opening and then the the precision and the, the pace in which she was taking the ball in short was something that I, I've not, not witnessed before. 
um, we saw it with the likes of, you know, your Rodney Martins and your, your Jonathan Powers and those guys, Jahangir Khan even, when they went in short, the ball, the ball would go in. It wasn't a, a, so much of a kill shot. It, it was that mid between a drop shot and a, and a kill. But it had so much head speed on, on the racket that it would just hit the front wall and literally died. And that was what Walili was doing on a consistent basis. And she, El Tayeb, for all of her movement, her skills and qualities, just did, she didn't have an answer for it. So yeah. that, for me, has been the most astounding performance I've seen from, from a lady player over the last, well, arguably ever. We're talking yeah. Sarah Fitzgerald, she has Michelle that. Martin, Susan DeVoy, all, all the greats. She, she has an ability to completely outclass and outplayers, uh, outclass and outplay yeah. players. Yes, when she's um, on, I, I, did there's no one, no one can touch her. Yeah. No, no. It, it, it's one of those where it's all in Walili's hands. Um, Tayeb did get revenge in the US Open semifinals. But this is where Tayeb again went away and worked on a game. She's obviously studied that the video footage of the um, San Francisco event. And what was so clever and subtle about what Noor El Tayeb did to Walili is there was so much more hold and deception, even in her basic length and her basic hitting. Every time she went in to hit the ball, she would just put a slight hold and a, uh, and a pause at the top of the swing, which completely stopped any momentum or rhythm of movement that uh, Raneem had. And that then started to break the movement down a little bit. And then because of that, Walili was actually rushing when she was going yeah. into the front of the court. She didn't have the same amount of her front court game. So it was, for me, it was a brilliant performance tactically from Tayeb, the way she turned that around in the US Open. Um, but then it, it looked as though it was going to be history in the making again. She had too much pause against Goha in the final um, and Goha hits this backhand drop at uh, two, I think she was two love down. She was match ball down yeah, yeah, yeah. and she hits this backhand drop, Jerry, honestly, it's, it's barely centimeters above the tin into the front left-hand corner. And then from that point on, Goha just started to gain momentum. And once she started to settle into the game after being outplayed for two games, you just started to sense that the momentum shift was so great. It was going to be really hard for, um, tired to then get back in the match, but I mean, what a, what a, a exciting time for the ladies' game. Oh, for sure. has been out. It's going to be interesting to see how she fares this week because she's well, been out be fired well up. With, yeah. with a knee issue. Hundred percent. She's she's watching all of these other girls, you know, playing, and there's nothing more frustrating as an ex as a pro watching all your fellow uh, professionals out there competing when you want to be, it's, and obviously it's in Egypt, it's in the pyramids, it, uh, it's an iconic event and she wants to be there. So she, 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 not that she needs any help on the hunger front, but she's going to be so excited to get back and play. But those four for me, the, you've got Walili, yeah. Tayeb, Shabini and Goha. There's a bit of a gulf of difference between their level right now. And, yeah. the, and the rest of the chasing back. Yes, you've got the Sarah Jane Perrys. You've got Tesney Evans coming up. You've got um, Supernim coming through. Camille, yeah. um, uh, um, she's 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 a bit of a bit of a veteran of the of the tour now, Jerry. She's yeah. had a you know, terrific career. But um, when you look at those four, unless for me those four have a bit of an off day or things aren't quite going, they're going to be very very hard to beat. And and I, I also feel that because of their relationship with the girls they're going to just keep pushing themselves and improving. I don't, I only see it going one way and I only see it getting better. 
Yeah, and they're all, I mean, maybe Rene might be a little bit older than, than the others, but uh, they're all still quite young. But Renin doesn't seem to be slowing down. No, very. If you look no. at her movement, you know, players, she's, I think she, I'm not sure if she's got the same fitness coach or, again, she, she probably does a lot of her training with Tarek, who's one of the most fleet-footed uh, <laughs> yeah. male players out there. She's one, yeah. of the, one of the quickest on tour. So, Absolutely. You yeah. know, if you start bringing that into the mix as well, the, the training that they're doing is a lot more... Back in the day, the the men's training and the women's training was it was a, a gulf of difference between the the amounts and the style of training that was done. But now, they're they're, they're getting a lot lot closer on that kind of on that level. So yeah. and and when Renee, all the time that she's moving, okay, that you can't question her hitting ability or her, her tactics. She's that's more she's me- mental with her. She switch that. she can switch off sometimes, and that, and that just seems to. Uh, to give other players uh, a chance uh, to beat her when she switches off. But when she's on, no, it's, like you said. It's, that's, that's, that's the unpredictability, isn't it? She's obviously got like a, a genius, like the brain of a genius when you watch her play. The things that she can produce are at, at times unexplainable. Um, so she has that ability, but then there's a flip side as as there is with Tarek, Tarek when Tarek's on, <laughs> yeah. he's unplayable. He's an absolute nightmare. Some of the you know the angles he can create and his his, shunk, uh, his front court game, his short game when it's on, is is quite phenomenal. But then he can also, in the very next game, give you six or eight errors. So you know, yeah. that's the, that's what makes it that's what makes them so exciting to watch. Yeah. Now um, I just finished watching uh, Gawad play Leo Al, and there were. I don't know, a handful of officiating decisions that they went to the review official. And, uh, you know, this was sort of, uh, (laughs) they got them right this time. Uh, But generally, uh, over the last little while, (laughs) (laughs) uh, there there have been issues with the the review system and both you and, and, uh, well, you and the rest of the Squash TV commentary crew, you don't pull any punches. You you do uh, critique the, the review system. So I'm just wondering uh, what, what your take overall is on, on the officiating of late, because there, there have been some changes, and uh, also just uh, the effectiveness of the uh, the player review system, as you've seen it over over the last couple of years. Okay, um, I I have a, a great relationship with most of the referees. Um, some some may Roy, Roy Gingell. For the most part, there's a. a, a uh, listen, I love Roy. Yeah. I do love Roy. But we have a, we have a good laugh and a joke. There, there's a history between us two, and it's all been laid to rest. And and we're very good friends now. And yeah, I think you I told that Roy's story uh, the last time you were on the podcast. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, think, yeah. I think you told so he, us he that. He and I now we're very close. Yeah, I, I love his passion for the sport. I love his. Um, he's a, he's a real character, and he he wants to improve and he wants to get better. Um, I understand everybody's point on the issues that we're seeing with a lot of the refereeing at the moment. Now, let's try and just rewind 15 to 20 years. If ever you any, if you get any chance to watch some of the footage on how many kind of really cheap, simple let decisions are given yeah. and how monotonous and boring and hard work it was to watch some of those games, you know, even the well, I just, uh, Jancher, sorry, the Pete, I just posted, really- uh, I just posted a video of, uh, Jancher Khan and, uh, Jahangir from way back. I think it was the men in cup and Jancher just got away with so many, 
so many lets that you, you know Correct. it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look. The, obviously, the, the it's with the advantage of squash TV and slow motion replays and video reviews. It, it's there is a massive. There's been a massive shift and a and a big change. If you look at the number of the decisions that we're seeing now. I remember watching, I think it was in 2010, it was Borja Golan against James Wilscott. It was 64 decisions, Jerry, yeah. which is, it's, it's unacceptable at that level to watch squash of that quality to be then ruined by 64 decisions for, for the majority of the time, just they're, they're non-incidents. There's nothing really happening. The slightest of contact, a player would used to stop back in the day, ask for let, and then you'd play the point again. Now, we, obviously, we don't want to see and sit through any of that. So the number of the decisions has massively been reduced. One hundred percent. Yeah. What 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 is is what has improved is if we look, if first of all the number's been reduced. Now, when we're looking at decisions, for the most part, we're arguing about the grey areas. A lot of the decisions that we're that are come that come to light, it's not the the black or white, you know, the massively obvious decisions. For the for the most part, there there are a few, and I will refer to one in a minute, the one with Paul Cole and um, El Shibagi at the U.S. Open. Yeah. But for the most part, a lot of the arguing that we're or a lot of the arguments that are taking place are on at times there isn't always a clear-cut answer so so for me there's been a in that respect a massive improvement in the quality of the refereeing mm -hmm. okay yeah can it improve absolutely yes and and these guys are in the spotlight it's it's and it's easy for us to all sit out the back and say oh well that, this you know that was a no let or that should have been a stroke when you're in, in a situation and the pressures that those referees are subjected to, where they have to make, bear in mind, we have the luxury of slow motion replay, different camera angles. Those guys have to make a decision at that specific moment in time. Yeah. Okay, the player can review and he can appeal it. And then the video, the VR, the video review referee will have an opportunity to watch it through again. But it's a very, very tough position for those central referees to be sat there. Bear in mind, they're on their own as well, Jerry. Back in the day, there were two referees, a referee and a marker. Yeah. So you also had a second set of eyes. They're, they're having to make those split-second decisions, which um, we all have the luxury of, of watching over and over again and, and making a, a, maybe a, a more accurate decision. So... I, all in all, I would say yes. There's been a, a major improvement in in the standard of the refereeing. There, and I may be speaking out of turn here. Not every, and there are guidelines and there are WSF rules which the referees have to adhere to and, and abide by. Not every single referee at the moment, believe it or not, is willing to abide by those rules, and that has actually been made quite apparent. So they're not willing to follow. It's mm. almost as though they have their own interpretation of the rules and the way things should be done. Right. Um, that's so do, do they see idea. the WSF rules yeah. as being uh, maybe outdated and, and, and they're applying something new? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So that's, you know, that's, that's their decision at the end of the day. And it doesn't so is it more, is it more like, a, like you see guys, uh, like today, for instance, there were several, you know, sort of let uh, Gawad tried to get easy, you know, sort of he was fishing for strokes and there was no, 
you know, some of them were no lets. Uh, is, it, is it on the, the, that yep. no let side of things where, you know, if there's plenty of room to play the ball, just play the ball? I, th I think there's a couple of gray areas that, that, that are difficult. I think this, one of the big rules that's, that's changed or, or where referees have started to be a bit more penal, it, it appeared as though they, they were starting to be more penal, were when shots were going into the front of the court and the striking player, let's say they went into the front left-hand corner, played a backhand drop, and they weren't clearing out of the way to give access. They would go in, they'd play the drop shot, and then literally stand yeah. back up yeah, yeah. In the line, in the line of the in the line of the oncoming player, this is the biggest area where there's been issues for me. Now, without boring everybody with the rules, but if you play if you play the ball, and it's retrievable, and you haven't given a clear line for your opponent to get through and hit it, it should be a stroke against you because, as as the rules state, you need to make every effort to get out of the way to allow your opponent to come in and hit. Yeah. Now, that for me is not taking place. It's not, they're not strictly abiding by the rules there because we see a lot of shots where somebody may hit the ball kind of mid-court or even semi-deep semi and uh, the, the striker's standing on the ball. The opponent wants to go across and take the ball early and e they can easily reach the ball and play it early, but they're blocked because of the striker not moving out of the way. And then let balls are given. But it, it's, it, again, there's, they're not sticking strictly to the rules. I think there's many, many examples where, you know, the shot quality, shot quality needs to be higher or the players have got to start to learn to play different shots in those situations or be penalised. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's where the consistency's fallen off a little bit. That's right. where the consistency is. Uh, it, it needs to get a little bit better. But as I said to you, Jerry, these, these now are the more intricate details and the subtleties mm. that we're discussing. I think I think um, like like you said earlier, improvements have been definitely made. Like I agree one hundred percent. The number of lets are, are way down. You don't get as much, uh, yep. you know, stopping and starting. Yep. It, it, that's not an issue. So, like you said, it's just sort of these little gray areas that are now surfacing, and that's just uh, that's just correct as a result of the improvement uh, of the officiating. I, I would say. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's certain areas, absolutely. Um, there's areas that um, that certainly need addressing. Uh, I think other other aspects can can look to improve, but we need to find a way, and this is just my opinion, we need to find a way to bring some ex-players back into the game, try to get them out there and refereeing, because as great as these referees are, and this is I'm not knocking them as referees at all, Sometimes as a player, as an ex-player, you have a slightly better understanding of what a professional player is able to retrieve, mm. what kind of shots they can get to, what are the subtleties in their movement, in their racket preparation, what are they looking to achieve here? Now, the refs that are out there at the moment have done a great job of learning and, and advancing their skills as referees, and we, do, we need those guys, but we also need an, an input from some ex-pros and some ex-players to... to to try and you know raise that level a little bit, it, it can definitely improve. It, it's improved over the last few years, but it still can get better. Right. Uh, an another issue that uh, sort of I think was brought up on a, at a recent event on, on Squash TV was the fact that um, the out call, like uh, balls that are going out, or we're not sure if they're in or out, they're non non reviewable. I think 
is that is that the case? And I'm just wondering uh, why why they wouldn't be reviewable. Yeah, that's actually a good question to which I'd, I'm not sure of the answer. I think maybe it could be an issue with the, the speeds of the cameras that are available and also where the cameras are positioned and located. Yeah, that's what I, I heard. It was something the, about the positioning the of the cameras or, or something along those lines. Yeah. They didn't have the right technology for it. But you can't, it looks like you're, you're when we Correct. see the video reviews, they're able to to show a ball, whether it's in or out there, they're able to show that on the replay. Yeah, no, so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't yeah, see the point. I, I, I would have to do some research. Yeah, I'd, I'm not entirely sure about the situation, uh, wh whether that's something is, that's within the rules that you can't appeal. Yeah. Uh, an out of court. But you, you'd have to agree that it should be, issue. it should be a reviewable thing or, or if the, if the official isn't sure, then they should review it as well. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, bottom line, we're looking to try and get the, the right decision. Um, sometimes it's very, very difficult to tell. If you look at the color, the colors of the core and the, the white ball and the, on the, the tough um, colors with all the lighting and everything going on, it sometimes it is quite hard to pick whether a ball is clipped out of court or not. Um, if, if we have the technology, I mean, PSA have got lots and lots of great ideas, but Unfortunately, they don't have the budget of, say, tennis or golf, where it's just as simple as, okay, we're just going to stick another camera in and we're going to get a super slow-mo uh, video to, to deal with those, those situations. Um, people are always asking me, why can't they get sensors for the tin? You know, when a ball goes close to the front wall, why can't... But yeah. They've tried that. And obviously, when a, when a squash ball hits the front wall, Jerry, it squashes and it increases in size because of the, the mass hitting the front wall. So what would happen as a ball was hit closer to the tin and it expanded, it would set off the sensor, even though yeah, the yeah. ball was, it wasn't hitting the tin, but it was extremely close to the tin. So they have mm. tried these different situations, but nothing has proven uh, 100% correct so far. Um, but again, with, with the out-of-court situations, I don't know. I honestly don't know what what uh, what the solution is there. Right. Yeah. Well, hopefully they get that right because it's it's a shame if a guy, if a ball you know something as simple as that should be reviewable and then you you can easily reviewable. see yeah. whether or not it's in or out. Yeah. But um, now I want to shift gears here, yeah. PJ. Um, a recent I recently had uh, on my 100th episode I had uh, Jonathan Power on. And uh, also, uh, I, I yep. was listening to you, uh, I think it was you and um, uh, Joey talking to Rod Martin. Uh, and both uh, Rod and, uh, yes. and JP were, talk, were, were basically sort of complaining. They'd say uh, they'd like to see more of a we're not here to make friends type of attitude uh, amongst the, the players these days. They don't, <laughs> see, they don't see much of that. Uh, now, obviously, with so many of the Egyptian guys uh, being at the top, many of them are, are friends, uh, very close friends. So that might be uh, you know difficult yeah. to to achieve. But what what's your take on that? I mean, you're you're from the JP era and and that era, running that sort of time. Uh, do you, would you agree with yeah. uh, what they're saying? Is there a bit too uh, much buddy buddy stuff going on out there these days? I'm. I'm old school, Jerry. I'm from the old school. Um, yeah. So I'd have to agree with uh, J JP and, and Rod Martin on this one. Um, 
I, I fully appreciate that obviously we're, we're currently in this world of social media and everything that we do is always being scrutinized and people are, are watching our, our every single move. So um, players do need to show a side to them, which is endearing or it's, you know, sense, I don't know, what, whatever you want to call it, a nice friendly uh, side to them. But it doesn't make sense to me when sometimes you see some of these messages on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or whatever it is about certain players, you know, um, I'm leaving, you know, leaving Cairo today, whatever it is, you know, uh, I'm unfortunately lost to whoever better player on the day, uh, back to the drawing board, um, full credit hats off or whatever it is. Yeah. Back in the day when I was playing, I, I hated losing. And it was, <laughs> it was such a, yeah. um, it was a, a massive, um, that was a, a, a massive thing for me. So I'm on court with these guys, battling it out. I'm trying to get as high as I can up the rankings. I'm trying to, um, you know, trying to make, trying to make a living as well, Jerry, back in the day. Let, let's not forget that if you look at some of the players of this generation, they've been very fortunate to receive a lot of um, government funding. So when I, when I was playing, this is prior to the days of the National Lottery, you were scrapping around, fighting hard for every penny, just so you could afford to fund your next event. So if I'm going out on the court with somebody, um, and by all means, I would be pally-pally before we went on the court, but the moment that door closed, uh, that, that we, were, we were, as far as I'm concerned, we were enemies. Yeah. And... Yeah. And if I came off the court, if I came off the court, I see it that this guy's just beating me. He's taken away my next round of prize money. I'm, I'm not going to be out there singing his praises and you know congratulating him on a better performance and, and that kind of thing. I'd be straight back to the drawing board trying to figure out where did I go wrong? How how can I get better? How can I improve? Yeah, um, I, I remember uh, actually. I, I think it was uh, Hong, the Hong Kong Open or one of one, one of the uh, matches. Uh, I think it was ninety seven, ninety eight. You played uh, Peter Nickel. I think you were up two love, and you had a couple yeah. of match balls. And and uh, it was after the match. I did. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, I, I saw the the interview yeah. with you after the match. It was on one of the Star Sports or something. And you uh, <laughs> you weren't happy. Yeah. Let's just say that. No, <laughs> quite right, quite right. Yeah. You know, and Peter and I were we were we were good pals off of the court, and and it's all you know, shake hands and you know, um, all, all well and good. Everything was all was 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 fine. But I've just I've just he's just beaten me, and and as as a competitor, that's as a player, it's like it's not the be all and end all. Don't get me wrong, but when you're trying to make your living at a sport, mm. somebody's just prevented you from doing that. So I'm not then going to be all nice and 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 pally pally. You know, going back to the the, the lottery funding issue, I remember yeah. in the early stages of my my career, um, I had uh, I had eight, I'll never forget this. I had 860 pounds English pounds in the bank. Okay, in my my NatWest bank account. And I had a flight for just over $900, it was 904 pounds, sorry, <laughs> to Japan to play in the, in, in the a tournament in Chiba City. So I've, I've gone overdrawn on my account. <laughs> yeah. I've flown out there, first round, I'm playing, I'm playing Sohil Quasar, uh, right. who's unfortunately <laughs> passed away. But he was in the eras of, of Jahangir Khan. And so I've gone on, I'm, I'm 18 years of age, a complete rookie, very naive on the tour. And I've gone out, 
and uh, Sohil started warming the ball up and I'm looking across and I'm hearing a completely different he was an unbelievable ball striker yeah. and I'm looking across and I'm thinking oh my goodness and this is all going around <laughs> in my head I've got a 900 pound flight to play I've got I'm already gone overdrawn and anyway I lost the first game and my head's in absolute turmoil anyway somehow managed to to find a win, got through to the quarterfinals and that then catapulted me. But but this these were the kind of situations that yeah. that kind of really evolved me as a player. So I had to, you know, face adversity in a, a real dire situation there where it was a case of sink or swim and fortunately pulled through it. You know, a lot of the players I'm not comp- I'm not saying we're so different, but a lot of the players today they do get some government funding, and it is a little bit slightly easier from a financial standpoint than it it was back then. So it was that was the generation that we were in, yeah. Jerry. You know, your powers, your Rodney Martins. They would sit out the court. They would sit there studying their opponents. They didn't want to be best friends with these guys. No. They wanted to beat them. No. It was it was that simple. Yeah. Um, no, I remember. Uh, it, I remember power. Power, uh, I remember one of his early, ma- I think it was right around when he just started to challenge for the top spot. He was quite young and he lost to uh, Rodney Isles um, in Hong Kong or something, semifinal match. And he like, he, he walked off the court, just kind of stuck his hand out and then slammed the door, right? <laughs> as, as he that left the court. That wasn't Malaysia in the, that, was, that wasn't the world championships in Malaysia? It might have been, I think. World, yeah. He just world, like uh, stormed off yeah, the court. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. we, re- we remember I can, those. I can guarantee you, he, 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 he wouldn't have been on Twitter minutes later congratulating Rodney Ars for a great performance. That, no. That was just, you know, that, it, it, yeah. no. <laughs> those results, they hit you hard. They hit you, they hit you hard as a player. Yeah. And it's not to say one is better or worse than the other, Jerry. It's, no, it's just a no. different era and it's a different time that we're in today. With the well, there's, there's more of an team. intrigue to, to but, the matches uh, with that element to it. I mean, uh, we look back and we remember the, the Palmer-Power rivalry. Every time they stepped on court, you never knew what was going to happen. Power-Nickel, to a certain extent, got a guy like uh, Anthony Hill, Tristan Nancaro. Those, I mean, they were the characters, real characters, uh, of the game. And, um, I mean, there are a few guys out there like that now, but you don't see it. It's not as, uh, palpable. Um, I'm just wondering like who, who were some of the guys that you, you played, uh, that had that kind of a uh, real edge to them that you, when you got on the court with them, you thought, okay, um, what's going to happen today? The, um, the unpredictability. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anthony Hill was always, <laughs> always a player, player that, um, it was quite funny because, I found out later, post-career, that um, for some reason he he really didn't like playing me, which was it was interesting. We <laughs> we always had a battle. It, it was it was my Anthony Hill was far more naturally gifted and talented than I was, but he was a complete head case. So I I knew that if I could stick in the game long enough and make it hard enough, eventually he would capitulate and break down because he he just couldn't keep that up long enough. Um, I played him in Qatar in the early or mid nineties, and I remember it was up to fifteen American scoring. Even when you got up to ten love, eleven love, twelve love, I, w- I actually beat him fifteen love in one game. But even when I got to twelve, thirteen love, <laughs> yeah. he st- he he still had uh, an an edge about him where you knew that you could not take your foot off the gas because he would have the he, he did have that ability to suddenly switch it on 
and became unplayable. For me, you know, I found him very difficult to play. I, I think yeah. I got to, about three weeks later after I played him in, in Qatar, uh, I'd beaten him three love there. We had to play a game in, um, we played in Holland, um, Eindhoven. Um, uh-huh. We're playing playing on one of the yeah playing in Eindhoven playing on the traditional yeah. courts there. We got drawn in the first round and turned up and he's he's all fired up and ready to play. <laughs> and I managed to win the first game. Halfway through the second game, he starts to get extremely physical. He's pushing, he's shoving. Long story short, a guy called Jack Allen is a very uh, he's a, yeah. an Irish referee, very very strong physical referee. Did a lot of kind of heavy work for the police force back in Ireland, back in the 80s and 90s. And um, Jack Allen actually disqualified Anthony Hill oh. um, in, in our match. And Anthony Hill then just sat on the court and he refused to come off until he, he physically got carried off the court. <laughs> so Hilly was one of those players who you never knew what you were going to get. But once I figured out that I had the, the psychological edge. Um, I actually ended up enjoy playing him. Powell was the same. Powell's another player, the unpredictability. I, yeah. I always loved watching Jonathan play and, and I really did not enjoy playing him because he put me into a level of physical discomfort from a breathing standpoint, an aerobic um, state that no player had ever done before. He wow. would stop, yeah. start my movement, break my movement down. He, he he was one of the players that really got onto the ball early at the front, dragging you up to the front of the court. And I found it extremely tough playing against um, Jonathan. But where I did lose a little bit of respect was towards the late stages of his career when players started to get on top of him. He had uh, quite a lot of matches where he didn't see the match through. He would, yeah, he would, so, he would suddenly, stop playing or he would retire. or Yeah. yeah. Um, which... I mean, I, Jonathan's a great guy, and again, a phenomenal talent. But that was a side to him that it was a, just a, a, it was a little bit of a shame. Yeah. Um, when he when he he did he did that kind of thing. Um, yeah, he saw. That, the... I never enjoyed. I mean, players I didn't. Enjoy. Sorry. No, so I was going to say, like sometimes, especially in his rivalry uh, with Peter, uh, you kind of knew almost from the beginning. You you could tell uh, which Jonathan was going to show up uh, if he. You know, if he was playing, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it all depended how he showed up, uh, and if he showed up like he yep. maybe tired or a little bit, you know, spent from from previous rounds, it, it was never that uh, that that type of thing tended to to happen. Yeah. yeah. Jonathan Jonathan was always also one of those players that had the ability to, when required, he could raise his level. So you know, when he when he became world champion in Qatar that year. Yeah. Um, then he won the Commonwealth Games in Malaysia in 1998. He and Peter had one of the most fantastic finals where he beat Peter in five, uh, where he, it was one of those tournaments where you could just tell that he decided he was going to bring his own game and he was going to play. Yeah. And when he did that, he, he, was, he was the best player in the world. As, yeah, as good sure. as Peter was and as good as, consist, as, and as, sorry, as consistent as Peter Nickel was, both players on their day playing their best power, well, you'd have to say, just had the edge. But Peter would beat Jonathan seven times out of ten, maybe yeah. eight times out of ten, because because he had that mental mental resilience and that that toughness. So there's been plenty of players over the years that have been entertaining to watch and and exciting um, and unpredictable, shall we say? But 
I don't think you have the players in the modern game like your, um, as you mentioned before, your Ricky Hills, uh, sorry, your Anthony Hills and, um, and players where you just knew at any stage things just could go bonkers. Da- Davide <laughs> Bianchetti? <laughs> he was actually a nemesis of Peter's. Peter Nichol had a horrible record against yeah. David, Davide Bianchetti, which was, which was so funny. Uh, I think Davide may have actually beaten Peter more times than the other way around. So he was certainly a bogeyman for Peter, and other players would find David relatively straightforward to play. So, yeah. uh, you know, those kind of characters. David also very, very, very Italian, very animated, and very dramatic. Oh, very. And, yeah. you know, well, that, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, with, with all the Egyptian guys, I mean, you see some of them do, they actually do have an edge to them. I mean, Tarek Momin, he gets all fired up. Uh, Gawad can yep. get fired up. Uh, a, a lot of them have short fuses but they tend to be playing each other yeah. all the time uh, and they're friends. So it doesn't sort of go to that place where it, it could go like it did with, with say a power Palmer uh, in the power Palmer incidents that have occurred over the years. So that, I mean, it could be just that in and of itself, you know, them being Egyptian, it just, that's their friends. You can't do anything about it. They could, they could be. I mean, you, you say that, Jerry, but I heard there was a, a major incident that took place over in uh, Egypt uh, today um, with Asal and Marwan El Shabagi. Oh, yeah. And this yeah. Is, well, this that, is I mean, Marwan's uh, got an edge to him, doesn't he? <laughs> 100%. Yeah he's, yeah, he's a scrapper, you know. Um, he, may, he makes life very edgy and difficult for the opponents, but that's where. This is going back to the point that you're making about all the friendly and nice and social media and everybody being pally pally. But when it really comes down to it and you start to see the true character, they got they have that edge about them. And you have to have that edge if you want to compete at the very top level. You need to have an air of nastiness or a side to you that is unbelievably feisty and competitive. It's not, it's not always, you know, nice and shaking hand. Bearing in mind as well, Jerry, I don't know if you've ever been to Egypt, but if you go to Egypt, we went to the World Championships in Egypt in 2000 and uh, I think it was 15, the year that Gawad won it. And it was, we were playing at the Wadi Degla Center. Wadi Degla's an amazing facility. I think there's something like 30,000 members amongst their clubs in the Cairo area. Mm. And it was a Tuesday night and it was eight o'clock in the evening and I, I was just having a, a knock around myself. And there was, a, there was an inter-club team match taking place on the far two courts. So I've gone down to just take a little look and you've got these you know, young players running around. I ended up chatting with one of the coaches there and he said, you know, this is a Tuesday evening and he was explaining to me that in Cairo alone, there were 17 teams, one seven, 17 teams yeah. of nine players in each team at the under 11 age group that oh, compete. <laughs> under Jerry, 11. <laughs> if you'd have taken a walk down there, yeah. under 11, this is under 11. If you'd have taken a walk down there, or if you heard the commotion, and the reason I went down is because of all the noise and the commotion. The parents are at logheads, the referees, were, you know, the coaches were getting animated and there's all yeah. the shouting and, you know, practically, not they weren't quite fighting, but it got so heated that mm. you thought to yourself, this could actually kick off at any minute. Yeah, so yeah. what I'm saying is that the environment that is is over there in Egypt, I'm not saying I'm not saying don't be completely fooled by all the niceties, but it is a very volatile and competitive, mm. very competitive. And, and feisty, 
uh, yeah, and and those true colors will get shown from time to time. So yeah, I think the, I mean, the, know, the, 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 the Egyptian guys that I know that I play with over here in the UAE, they're very, they're very feisty, very competitive, dogged, uh, and they'll, you know, they're not afraid to uh, speak uh, their minds and, and go at it with you on the court. So hmm. but, a guy like Ahmed Barada, he's a great example. <laughs> No, he he certainly wasn't nice off the court. He 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 he. You got what you saw with him. Yeah, yeah. So you know, and it, he made he made no secret of it. He was, um, you know, he was out there to he was out there to kill you basically, and then <laughs> he was out there to beat you, and nothing was going to get in his way. Yeah. So that's that's a slightly different um, personality trait to what we're seeing today. Yeah. But, well, PJ, you've, you you've been uh, tremendous uh, with your time. Now, I know you saw on uh, Squash Stories that I posted that you were coming on, and I got quite a few uh, yeah. questions for you. I'll, I'll sort of pare it down a bit, but I'd be remiss if I didn't include uh, Jamie Maddox's. Hopefully, hopefully, they're all, hopefully, they're, hopefully they're all nice, uh, nice, nice questions. There are a few off-color ones here. <laughs> okay, uh, right. Jamie, Jamie Maddox wants to know... <laughs> Jamie Maddox wants to know: Was the uh, was the uh, Drexel Devil dinosaur incident staged? One hundred percent not. Absolutely not. In actual <laughs> fact, um, <laughs> as you could probably tell by our reactions, uh, Jamie, if you're listening, yeah, we were doing our best to try and stay somewhat professional, but it, it was extremely off-putting. Um, and it was great. I mean, obviously, we, we're trying to interact as much as we can. We want to bring the fans as close to the action as, as possible to give them an insight as to the environment and the circumstances that we're working in. And uh, <laughs> literally mid-interview, this, you know, big, ugly bear, or this big, ugly dragon. At one stage, we thought it was Nick Matthew, because all, all we saw was a set of teeth. <laughs> it's just come into the picture. These big white yeah, teeth yeah. have come into the picture. Yeah. So, so we've seen. Uh, so we thought it was Nick Matthew at one stage, and it was great when he when he first popped in, and it was all well and good. But the only problem was he he kind of outstayed his welcome. And he hung around just that little bit too long, and and made uh, made life a, a little bit yeah. a little bit uncomfortable. But a bit um, of a pho photo yeah, bomb would have been okay. Try... Correct. Correct. What we're trying to do, and and as you know, with some of the new features that we've posted on. Um, Squash stories as well. Our job at Squash TV is to just try and get these guys as as close to and give them as much insight of the PSA World Tour as we possibly can. Because these guys, uh, the players, in my opinion, they deserve a lot more recognition because uh, I know the the limits and the, the efforts that they go to to compete at this kind of level. And I I just think it's so. Um, understated and on how great an athlete and, and the dedication that they put in. So oh, yeah. that, that's our, that's our goal there. And yeah, so that's, that's what well, we're you trying got, to do. You guys do a great job. I really love, uh, I think, and I speak for, for everyone out there. I think we love listening to, to the squash TV commentary, both the, you know, UPJ uh, on the, and on the women's side, uh, uh, Lee Drew and um, uh, whoever he happens to, I think it was. Uh, Ashley, Ashley, Ashley Blake, Ashley Blake yeah. or Vanessa. Yeah, Ashley. Ashlyn, 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 she, she's a she's a great addition, to, to isn't she? Squad, yeah. She knows her squash, eh? Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. She played to a very good level. She's she's got that Irish twang, which is always easy to listen to. Um, yeah. she's very knowledgeable. She likes to give Joey a hard time, which I she does because he deserves it. 
Yeah, he he always it. likes to think he's got the upper hand, and he's he's the smart one. But we uh, we, we give him <laughs> enough rope, and eventually we'll bring bring we'll bring him down a peg or two. But she's 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 awesome. She speaks very well. She's very confident. She's great on camera, and as as you say, she she's played to a very good level. So um, she's um, a, a huge addition to our to our team. Now there are a few people uh, out there. Jack Bishop being one of them. He he thinks the. Uh, uh, Joel Macon's nickname should be changed to the uh, the Honey Badger. Uh, uh, I mean, I think that's an apt. Uh, I think that's an apt one. Uh, what what do you say about that? Uh, you, you, <laughs> I think you could get yourself into a little bit of trouble going down that route. But um, <laughs> Joey, Joey, Joey Joey takes great pride and pleasure in uh, being the the nickname inventor, if you like. Of all the players, it, it yeah. kind of brings out his childish side. We all know he's a big kid. Yeah. At the end of the day, um, the honey badger. I'm not sure. I'm not too sure. It's kind of that it, Joel Makins. He's 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 a you know he's he's a very physical. Uh, he's a strong guy. Resilient. That kind of honey badger is just a little bit too sweet. It's a bit too sweet and a bit too nice for him. Ah. I think he needs something a little bit more. Um, <laughs> what is, what, what's his uh, what's his nickname again? The uh, the the white tiger, Sorry. the golden tiger, the golden tiger, golden yeah. tiger. I think the golden tiger. Yeah, okay. Which yeah. I have to say, I have to say uh, to Mr. Bishop, it's a nice it's a nice tribe, but it's just a little bit too soft and a bit. We're trying to make these guys out to be, you know, you've got the Terminator, the Beast of Alexandria, mm, the Terminator. One hundred percent, I agree with the that. Maestro. Yeah, yeah. The uh, so the, the baby faced assassin. That, they. There you go. You need them. That was actually mine, believe it or not. I, that's okay, that my was your sole claim. That's the best one. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I actually stole that from um, for Alex Ferguson when he nicknamed Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. He was like a super sub coming on from Manchester United. Okay. The baby-faced assassin. And I remember watching Gawad. He was, I can't remember, but he just looked about 12 years of age. But then he just had this ridiculously severe short game. Oh, and, yeah. Um, it was I on display that, today. That was a, a very, very brilliant. Good. And when he's, uh, he currently is my favorite player. Whenever, yeah. whenever Gawad is in form and he's fit, um, yeah. he has that ability to, to play perfect squash. He, he gets a great line and length, dying on the ball. Anything just, around uh, the middle of the His backhand court, is a thing left, of beauty, the, court, the way he especially. plays the backhand, the, the backhand wall. It's almost everything up. to read him in the front left corner. It, yeah. yeah. He's got six or seven different options from the same top top of the backswing the preparation looks identical whether he's playing a short drop straight drive backhand cross court trickle boast I mean you just as a as a player I never played him fortunately I, I think he'd have been he'd have had my knees and hips in absolute pieces he'd have been a disaster <laughs> yeah. but he's, when he's on he's, he's awesome I love watching him play now uh, there there was a question also and I think you alluded to it earlier but maybe we didn't uh, sort of finish it off it was about the uh, Mar uh, Mohamed El Shabagi, Paul Cole, John Mazzarello decision, where he, uh, yeah, where yeah. where John told Shabagi to play the ball earlier, and uh, so where are the yeah. refs getting uh, these uh, this new interpretation uh, from? I guess we we talked about it earlier. It's stuff that maybe behind the scenes they're sort of implementing rules that they see should be there but but aren't that kind of thing. John Mazzarella is a fantastic referee. The way his man management of matches, which is a very, again, it's an understated part of refereeing. His man management is 
uh, world class. He, he's one of the best in the business of how he controls the players. That for me was just, and listen, nobody's perfect. We all make decisions. Uh, we all make mistakes, should I say. That John just got that one horribly wrong. Um, now, we have seen incidents over the years where a slightly loose ball will get played through the middle of the court. The, the player that's just played that poor shot is doing their best to retract as far back into the court as possible to allow room for the striker to play it. And we've seen some horrible cases of players really exaggerating their preparation, trying to wrap it around the opponent, bring them into the swing, looking to, to get a stroke from that kind of situation. And in those kind of scenarios, then I agree. A, a no-let or a, possibly a, a let could be played. But in the situation that you're referring to, Mohamed El Shabagi, not once does he turn around to look for Paul Cole to try and bring him into the swing. Now, that's the first situation. Secondly, one of Mohamed, as a referee, you can't dictate to a player when they have to play the ball. Obviously, before it bounces twice, but they can hold and they can wait as long as they possibly want before they take that and hit that ball. One of El Shabagi's biggest weapons, and everybody knows the shot that I'm talking about, is when he holds and he suddenly drops his racket head onto the ball into the front right-hand corner. He looks as though yeah. he's going to give it a massive whack and then he suddenly feathers it into the front right corner. That's one of his trademark shots. If you watch the way that El Shabagi goes to hit and he, he starts to drop the racket head into that exact same position that he would do to take in the forehand drop, if he, as he's about to do that, Jerry, Paul Cole is clearly in his swing. Now, yeah. Mohammed has not looked for Paul Cole at all. It's a natural reaction and a natural swing preparation that Mohamed El Shabagi's made. Shabagi's moved back. He's clever could be because he knows where Paul Cole is. But if he wants to, he can take that front right corner. He can take that ball into the front right corner for, for one of his you know, best, <laughs> best shots that he's, that he's got in his artillery. And he's, he's unable to do that because Paul Cole's standing there. If he'd have tried to hit that, he would have right. you know, snapped his racket across. Paul Cole's back. So stonewall stroke. And I don't understand why there's so much uh, kind of back and forth on, on social media about it. it it's, there's no other option. Shabagi wants to play the ball. He's not looking for the stroke. He can't play one of his favourite shots because Paul Cole's in the swing. And I guess he can like wait he, as long as he possibly likes. The no, I guess like you say, I mean, every, everyone makes, you know, everyone has a bad call, I guess, here and there. So uh, that was just one of his. Uh, Correct. One of these days, yeah, yeah. One of those days. Now there was uh, just one don't, more. Don't get me wrong, Jerry. Yeah. Just, don't, just to just to quickly interrupt there. In yeah, similar yeah. scenarios to that, with slightly different positions of the ball, players have been guilty of fishing for the stroke. I understand that, but the situation that you're referring to, that's not the case. So that's basically what happened, right? He 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 was applying that correct that correct. that to that situation, but it wasn't. He was he wasn't fishing. Correct. So, yeah. Now there was one. No, uh, not at all. Not no. at all. There, there's one more uh, on squash stories. There's a, a fellow by the name of Paul Atio. Uh, I'm not sure if you know Paul, but okay. uh, yep. he says I know, that I know, uh, yeah, I know Paul. Yeah. He says he he played you in his very last ever junior match. Uh, do you remember <laughs> that? <laughs> um, his last ever junior match. Um, yeah. I vaguely. Is this the one where he? Did he, he, did, he didn't give details, but he, he just says he had down. the luxury of playing you in his very his last ever match as a junior. 
Oh, I'm not sure it went well. That's um, quite 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 endearing. It's nice to know that he remembers that match. But um, I vaguely remember. I think he might have even got to the the match a bit late. But then he was saying that because of his late arrival and ill preparation, he was his head was in complete turmoil, worrying about missing the match. And he got there, and I think I managed to sneak a victory. And uh, he, he claimed that had he been there on time and plenty of time to get himself <laughs> ready, it would have been a very different outcome. <laughs> For sure, yeah. But uh, I'd be interested to know where 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 that match was. Um, can't, can't quite remember. So we must have we must have both been about 17, 18 years of age. But uh, it's very nice that Paul remembers that, and um, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully, went on to bigger and better things than <laughs> losing to me. Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, now, uh, I have my own question for you uh, before you go, PJ. Now, we're both. Um, no, I'm both. addicted to golf. I, I don't know about you, but I am. I played today. Uh, I love the game. And I remember when you were here last time, I tried to get you out, but it was a bit too hot here in Dubai to be playing uh, much golf in the summer. Uh, But um, I'm just wondering, uh, I guess over the years, you would have had the opportunity to play, you know, a lot of golf with with different squash players over over the years. I'm just wondering if you have any memorable uh, uh, foursome matches or or any memorable golf matches golf uh, anecdotes with, with uh, squash players that you could share with us? Um, I, do, I mean, I remember that last year. It was, it was uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, it was a nice problem to have being too hot in Dubai. But, I, I mean, I always love playing golf in Dubai because of the pristine conditions of the golf courses. Yeah, Emirates Golf Course is um, great. Yeah. I, I, it's fantastic. And, and the guys over at Emirates have always been very accommodating yeah. for us. Um, and, Andy Meach. Um, Andy Meach was great, but prior to Andy Meach, there was a very good friend of mine who I knew as a as a junior player and a player, a guy called Chris Turlick. He was the manager, or the yeah, I think he was the manager at Emirates for a number of years. So back in my playing days, when it was off season, some friends of mine and I would fly across to Dubai. We would stay uh, stay at the Mina Mina Al Salam, and Chris would actually get us onto the Emirates Golf Course. Um, for some complimentary rounds of golf. So we were very, very fortunate in that respect. Is that during the uh, Dubai um, threes, Paul? Correct, yeah. Dubai, Dubai threes, threes and also outside. Yeah, the Dubai threes. Yeah, it, it, Dubai was Country Club. played them, but um, Dubai Country Club, yes. Yeah. Um, due to the, shall we say, um, event evening events, uh, early tea times were not always made, Jerry. Um, it was a very, <laughs> very social event. <laughs> And, and players' players' priorities were either playing squash or um, entertaining. So uh, right. golf wasn't always high on the agenda. But um, I've got some very good friends of mine uh, that are very good golfers, also squash players. Rodney Martin is a scratch handicapper. Yeah. Um, a guy called Mick Roberts was a very talented junior. He's based up in West, West Hartford. Uh, he's... He's around scratch, probably he's probably closer to like a maybe a plus one handicap now. Ryan Cuskelly plays a very good level of golf. So we've got some access to some very good courses in and around here in the New York area. But um, with the coaching side of um, my, my work here, my job, some of the families that I teach are members of very exclusive and very high-end country clubs. So I've, I've managed to gain access to a couple of 
uh, world-class and, and U.S. Open golf courses oh, uh, nice. over yeah. the years. Um, that's nice. that's, that's which is which has been which has been phenomenal. So, but, what's um, the strength of your game, PJ? I mean, my 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 strength, I'd say, I'm, I'm pretty decent off the tee, and uh, I'm fairly. You know, yep. When I'm close to the green, I'm I'm fairly good. You know, I'm fairly good chip. I can I can short chip game, pretty close. Short, short, game, short game's decent. Short game's decent. Yep, my putting's I'm, 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 my putting's a bit bit dubious though. <laughs> well that's where you need to sharpen up your game you know yeah, um, yeah. for me pretty steady off the tee pre- pretty steady off the tee very good with my irons but Ooh, okay. it's, it's an age old cliche that you hear it's a hundred it's a hundred yards in where my game starts to sort of struggle a little bit and to, you know the wedge play and the, and the putting needs to improve but um, I'm, I'm working on that this year so you know, maybe if all goes well and you get me back on it sometime in the in the not too distant future, I'll, I'll have a, a better story to tell you. But it's a working process, and and it's quite interesting because the work ethic and the the drive that I had as a player, squash player, I find that I do bring that to the practice facilities and the golf course. So a lot of the traits and the the disciplines that you learn as a player, trying to focus and practice with purpose and all of those kind of skill sets that you had to develop as a squash player um, are also transferred. They don't just diminish, they're yeah. transferred across onto the golf course. So it's an, it's an interesting one. You, you catch yourself sometimes really trying to hone in and get into the zone and, and prepare. And it, it, it's quite bizarre. It's quite funny. Yeah. You do, uh, do laugh sometimes. But well, good. It's, uh, it's a great sport and one you can take wherever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good luck with your, with your golf game and uh, really appreciate uh, what, the, the time you had uh, for me today, Paul, and uh, looking forward to more seeing you more on Squash TV over the next year. Very much appreciate, Jerry. It's uh, been a pleasure, and uh, hopefully we've got another great season coming up. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, that was great stuff from Paul. I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, really, really enjoyed uh, talking to him about all of those aspects of the game. Uh, thanks again for, for Paul for make, taking the time out. I hope he does find his... Um, his iPad. Um, I did manage to locate mine, uh, unable to retrieve it. Uh, so unlucky uh, for me. That that was a few years ago, and uh, I had uh, a few too many drinks and managed to uh, somehow uh, leave the iPad in a taxi. Woke up in the morning, figured figured out what happened, and uh, it was too late by that point. Uh, at any rate, uh, anyone in New York City who might be listening. If you found an iPad, it could be Paul Johnson. So please uh, contact him uh, right away. He'll be looking. Uh, he'll be very happy to hear from you. And uh, I'm very happy to have everybody uh, listening to the podcast. I know you. Uh, I know you enjoyed this one. I've got uh, a couple more coming up. I know you'll enjoy as well. Uh, we've got Danny Lee hopefully coming up at the end of the week, and uh, he'll be a great person. I've never spoken to him before so this will be fantastic uh, to have him on and talk about uh, all the the squash initiatives that he has ongoing with the PSL he's got an upcoming tournament uh, on the PSA tour coming up I believe as well so plenty to talk to Danny about and then we've got uh, I don't want to jinx it but uh, another player from the PSA tour on the women's side hopefully uh, that'll come through Uh, for me as well so at any rate uh, again thanks everyone for listening take care enjoy your squash enjoy the women's world open and the men's squash as well and we'll talk to you soon goodbye now